Dr. Stephanie Reinold is a board-certified psychiatrist, body image coach, women's mental health expert, and eating disorder specialist. She is the author of the best-selling book, Let Your Heart Out, podcast host of the show, It's Not About the Food, and creator of the all-caps, H-E-A-R-T, Heart Method, a self-led therapy tool helping with emotional self-awareness and resiliency. She went to med school at the University of Texas at San Antonio and did her residency at George Washington University. Now, speaking to patients about their weight can be challenging as this is often emotionally charged and multifactorial. Issues with body image, emotional eating, confusing and contradictory information about what, when, and how to eat. And as one patient told me, you don't have to smoke to live, but you have to eat to live, can make this conversation challenging for physicians and patients. Her aim is to help people to have healthier relationships with food and to untangle the complicated knot that surrounds food and decision-making about food. We discuss her current podcast and her online journey, which included previously advocating for a specific way of eating, which she now believes is part of the problem. She also discusses her own interactions with the healthcare system that she found triggering regarding her weight. She teaches effective ways to start the conversation, if at all, about eating habits, and how she believes that BMI is not an accurate measure of one's health. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. Those on this podcast accept no liability for the outcomes of medical decisions based on this information. As the radiologists like to say, clinical correlation is required. This is not medical advice, and this does not constitute a physician-patient relationship. If you have a medical problem, seek medical attention. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Stephanie Reinold, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us about your practice and your podcast. How did you end up in this particular niche? Well, I am a psychiatrist, and obviously for doctors, you know that that is a medical doctor, but I always give the disclaimer, it's different from a psychologist. So for any non-medical or even nurses or other people listening, just to give a disclaimer, I did go to medical school, although sometimes uh, we're forgotten in the mainstream medical space. So I think I have to kind of unpack why I even became a psychiatrist because it was definitely not on my radar. I was the average medical student who you know, looked at psychiatry as the easiest class you take, you know, the psychation was my third year clinical rotation. And so just so you know, psychiatry was like bottom of the list. It was something absolutely never I'm going to go into. You know, I grew up in a probably traditional conservative Christian home and, you know, the way mental health was spoken about in my home was probably not unlike maybe many other families and maybe a lot of individuals listening where the treatment for mental health was sort of very stigmatized and it was sort of seen as our problem, not a biological illness. So for many factors, even going into psychiatry was a huge hurdle of mine. And it really came down to lots of different things that is beyond the scope of this interview, but really it came down to time with my patients. And I had done, I had the opportunity to do a hospice palliative care elective when I was a fourth year medical student. And again, this was like 
One of those things I chose because it was easy and I was pregnant at the time and I wanted some easy rotation, not at all thinking it would change the trajectory of my training. You know, this was right before September when applications were due. I had every intention of going into internal medicine. I was going to do GI medicine. I was going to, I had a very surgical kind of brain. And then although that's interesting already because GI, I think, is a lot of psychiatry in it anyway. But one of our episodes, one of my first episodes was with a program director of the University of Rochester GI program. And she said, the gut is the window to the soul. So totally. yeah, I, I totally get what you're saying. Totally. So it is funny that that's what it came down to for me. Um, and there were a lot of things that I liked in medicine, I, but I did this hospice palliative care elective and I saw people on their last days and I just, I don't know, I just fell in love with talking to patients. And I know that sounds really simple and silly, but I really saw the field of psychiatry as kind of the last frontier of medicine where you were able to have time with your patients. And I, and I really valued that. I really valued the art of a conversation and, you know, being able to see pathology with personalities. And, and so then I, completely changed my whole fourth year schedule, decided completely on faith, really, because I had never even done like an inpatient psychiatry rotation. My third year was like at the VA. It was a very, you know, cush kind of third year rotation. And so I really chose my specialty by by total chance. And I could not be more happy with my decision because now looking back, I can't, I can't imagine myself doing anything different. And so going into psychiatry, I really didn't know anything. You know, I had never been to a psychiatrist myself. I'd never, I didn't really know a whole lot about mental health other than cramming for the exams. And like, you know, basically again, it was so low priority in my academic training throughout medical school that I really didn't even understand a lot about mental illness. So residency for me was a pretty big learning curve. I mean, I, th I think that is for a lot of people, but for me especially, I just really fell in love with learning about the brain and learning about human behavior and seeing people throughout my residency, you know, continuing to struggle with a lot of the same things. And those things being I'm tired. I want to lose weight. I'm not happy with my life. I have no energy. You know, these really common things that I indeed struggled with, you know, and I, backing up, you know, I have my own story with an eating disorder for which I never really got formal treatment, I think for a lot of reasons, but I think that stigma piece was really huge. And when I was in medical school was a time when I was probably most healed and recovered. And yet I still found myself really grappling with this idea of not being happy in my body. And I thought, well, I guess it's just because I'm a woman. I'm just never going to be happy in my body. And, you know, I sort of switch from diet to diet and trying to like find the magical lure of, you know, the best way of eating, the best way of, you know, moving my body. And so I would get really into health and fitness and it was all under this guise of health. And yet I saw people that were coming to me for things that had nothing to do with food in their body. You know, they were coming to me because they were depressed. Obviously they were in the hospital because they were suicidal. They were, you know, having self-harm. They were having ADHD or, or completely unrelated things. And yet, because I was interested in health and fitness, I would sometimes end up talking to them about food and their body. And because of my previous history with an eating disorder, I would really want to dig down to some of those symptoms. And so 
it was something that I noticed a lot of my colleagues and even attendings never talked about. They didn't, they didn't ever ask their patients. So this was not something I saw other clinicians doing. It was something I really took upon myself that, wow, this is a huge part. For example, I remember a college student I trained at GW in uh, Washington, D.C., we saw a fair amount of college kids in our inpatient unit and her entire suicidal ideation was literally wrapped up in her body image. And I was like, how are we not talking about this stuff? We need to be talking about it more. And so it was- Yeah, where the answer is very clearly not like, you know what's going to help you? Keto. You know, <laughs> keto, that's going to fix this problem. You know what? You're pro- too many carbs. That's, yeah, that's clearly right. the underlying pathology here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, and, and so I think your, you know, this journey that you're talking about yourself also fits in with your online journey, right? Because yes. you didn't start mm-hmm. off with your current podcast. Mm-hmm. You've been in the online space uh, as a physician and in health and fitness and mm-hmm. eating previously. And I think your, your kind of current belief system mm-hmm. is, I think we should talk about your previous online forays to get sure. to where you are now, if, if that's okay. Sure. Yeah, it's great. And, and it really parallels my journey too, because I started, I, I think I had my first blog actually in medical school. And that was just sort of me musing on medical training, really no direction or focus from a business standpoint at all. But then when I was in residency, I started my very first online adventure was a food blog of all things. And I specifically remember one of the very first opt-ins I had was about improving your mood with food. And I had this very, it's a typical mainstream concept, you know, change your food, change your mood. And I don't, you know, coming full circle, I don't disagree with that. But I think there's about a hundred steps before that, that people don't realize. And I now realize that. And so um, I had a food blog for a while, which I just ended up, it fell to the wayside after having babies and residency, obviously. And then I did more maternal things. And um, one of the clinics that I trained in when I was in residency was about perinatal, you know, postpartum infertility, that kind of stuff. And because of my own experience, after my oldest was born, I had postpartum depression. I got very much into that mom space, if you will. And in that space, I was, again, very much entrenched in improving your physical health to improve your mood. And and again, I don't disagree with that, but I do think there are so many steps before that because I realized very quickly that I was actually making a lot of disordered thoughts worse by continuing to focus on food and my body to fix my mood or to fix my marriage or to fix other things in my life that I wasn't happy with. And I realized the same thing in a lot of patients that I was treating, that they were thinking they were doing all the right things to improve their health, to improve their mood, but then they were really still depressed and they didn't know why. And so it took a bit of uncovering, like what is going on here with people? And I remember it actually took some issues in my own marriage. Again, nothing to do with food, nothing even to do with me, really about me and my husband. And I ended up in therapy. This was my fourth year of residency. So this was my last year of residency. I had a bit more time to kind of focus on me and to like actually have some self-care. It was the first time ever in my life I had been to therapy, gone any sort of mental health treatment at all, which I just think all doctors should go to therapy at some point because a lot of stuff just came out about patients and and stuff that I just think all doctors, regardless if you what about care all about, humans, 
Yes, true. And there was one therapy session that I remember leaving. And again, when I in therapy, nothing came out about food. We never talked about food. But what I realized is I started to just not care about it. Like this this weight, this burden of always being so hyper-focused on needing to find the perfect diet and needing to fix my body all the time, it just went away. And paradoxically, my physical health improved also. I did have more energy. I was sleeping better. You know, my relationships were improving. And I had this epiphany in one therapy session. I just remember driving home and I just remember thinking, it's not about the food. It's really not about the food. And and that just really opened my world to, to how I can better help people and also what actually I think works. So do you think that's the case with with most patients where they tend to fixate on their diet and really it's a reflection of them trying to find, like an example being right now, my wife has completely organized our house, right? Like our garage, our shed, our closet, like, and, and she recognizes that like in a very tumultuous world, she finds calm in organizing. So like in a tumultuous life, you find maybe some calm and some purpose and, and focusing on this one thing where you can control it. You can control what you're eating and when you're eating and how you're eating. And it gives you this, this sense of, of calm. Do you think that's what's happening with, with a lot of our patients or is it like a select, a special select group? That's a really good question. You know, and I used to think really this was mainly eating disorder patients, people who have a previous history or some predisposition to that. However, I think two things. One is that we do a very poor job of screening for eating disorders. So I think there's a lot of people, you know, the the average statistic is only really 10% of people with a clinical eating disorder ever get help for it, which means there's about 90% of people walking around the world that never get diagnosed, that never get treated, that really are struggling with an active eating disorder. You know, and, and I was a perfect example. I never had a formal diagnosis, but now knowing what I know, I definitively struggled with a clinical eating disorder for years of my life. And so that's problem number one, that we don't actually diagnose these issues to begin with. So then we don't ever actually know who is high risk. And, and so if those people are more high risk to say, turning to food as their source of comfort, to turning to food for that sense of control in their life, then it stands to reason we need to take 10 steps back and actually talk to people more about, you know, I do think that it is possible for people to want to take control over their food for purely health reasons. However, I think that is really hard to untangle from a belief system and a mainstream medical rhetoric that tells us that we have to attach that to weight loss. And so it's kind of the greater portion of the story as well when I really started digging into the science. You know, I'm someone who always asks why, so I couldn't really take things at face value. I had to dig deep. And I kept asking why, like, why is it that there really are people that are naturally thin? Why is it that there really are people that are naturally in larger bodies? Is it because they really are lazy? Is it because thin people really are healthy? Or is there a missing link that I didn't learn about in medical school? Everything in medical school is very weight-centric. It's very based on BMI standards. And when you do some of the research behind BMI, it really wasn't ever intended to be an instrument of individual health. 
you know, we have misconstrued a lot of that. And and I won't say that weight has zero impressions in health because we do know there's a lot of correlations between higher weight and other chronic disease, but we also don't take into account that correlation is not always causation. And I noticed that for my body size, my body type, I was in a very average size compared to many women in my family. So then why was I trying to be somebody that probably genetically was not even possible for me, you know? And so I think, you know, to come back to your question, control of food, if it's so fixated on this end result of the dream ideal body, whether or not that's actually physically healthy for you can be argued. And and that is something that we need to investigate further, I think, with patients and, and people. Yeah, I, and I totally agree about the weight, you know, that's that specific number, the weight. I think it's more like creatinine, right? Creatinine is not a measure of your kidney function. It's a proxy for kidney function. So like you can't compare my creatinine to your creatinine because if my muscle mass is different and, you know, it's going to influence different versus like some 90-year-old, 80-pound grandma, her creatinine is going to be, it's going to look like I'm in kidney failure compared to her creatinine. So I think, would you agree that weight is more like a proxy for some other measurements that we're looking for? For instance, how well you eat. If you eat a lot of fast food, your body mass index is going to go up. But comparing one person to another, just because one person's body mass index is higher than another person, you can't really compare them to each other because one person might be an athlete and eat well and just happen to carry some extra weight, whereas the other person eats McDonald's three times a day and doesn't exercise um, and their body mass just ha- BMI just happens to be lower. I th- so I think it can be when studying public health, when studying populations, yeah, it can be a proxy, but like for that individual, it's not a good idea to fixate on those numbers. Right. And I think it comes back to really holistic health, like looking at the whole person. And unfortunately, with weight and the primary care, the way that it is these days, sometimes there's no conversation around habits. You know, I, because oftentimes I'll hear from some of my larger body clients who actually they're healthier than me, you know, (laughs) like they run faster than me, they lift more weight than me, and they have health promoting habits and behaviors in their life that are actually linked to longevity and better quality of care and better health outcomes, regardless of their body size. And yet they're shamed constantly from their doctors because there's this fear that I think we were all entrenched in this in our mainstream medical schools that we go to that weight equals health. And so if you're in a larger body, even if you don't have diabetes, you don't have blood pressure issues, your cholesterol is fine, everything looks good, you have health and healthy habits, you're eating well, it's like we can't as doctors some believe that someone in a larger body is actually healthy, so we have to fear them into losing weight because maybe they won't be healthy. Well, The same could be true for a thin person who, like you said, eats fast food every meal, has horrible sleep, smokes two packs of cigarettes every day. I mean, there's so much that goes into it that I would say that person in a thin body is much more unhealthy than someone in a larger body who has better healthy habits and behaviors. And so I think it comes down to like, we can't, we literally can't judge someone by, you know, what they look like. We can't judge a book by their by the cover, we can't judge a patient by what they look like because you sincerely have no clue what is really going on until 
you have a deeper conversation, you order more labs, you actually investigate, you know, what's going on with them. How would you start this deeper conversation, right? Where do we even, let's say you are primary care physician and you do have a patient that has an elevated BMI, right? And, you know, you start talking about, maybe they do mention their habits. Maybe they even speak about themselves in a negative way, right? Which is a common mm-hmm. thing. And I think we, mm-hmm. the onus is on us to call that out when, when we see it. So you do want to start having this conversation. Where do you begin? I think this is where my psychiatry training really comes in because there's something we learn in training that I wish every doctor learned, and it's called motivational interviewing. And the the best example is, say, someone that is a smoker and we know really needs to quit smoking for their health. That's been very well studied, very well encouraged. Well, how do you have that conversation with an active smoker? You first find out where they are in their mindset around change. So not only one, do they need to change their body? So having a conversation around like, what is their health status like? But even before that, I want to ask them, why are they even here? And staying focused to why they're even there. I think that's a boundaries issue for a lot of doctors. You know, I I think that we want to encroach on Again, weight is somehow seen as this big thing that we must save everybody from. And yet the science doesn't really back that up, number one. And number two, what if they came in for strep throat? They don't need to be shamed for their weight. Thin people and large people get strep throat all the time, every year, year round. So why don't we just treat the strep throat this time? And we ask them, is there anything else you'd like to talk about? they say, no, you leave it at that and you have a strong boundary. Now, the motivational interviewing comes into play is if they are coming to the table. So your patient's coming to the table with a desire to lose weight or with a desire to improve their health. Then you need to investigate, well, where are they starting from? Where are they at right now? Are they very sedentary smoking on top of, you know, eating horrible food, getting bad sleep, tons of stress in their life? Well, then let's see if there's one thing that we can start to improve upon, you know, at that point. Well, I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Like I'm an otolaryngologist, so I see sleep apnea. I also happen to see strep throat, but right. I would never, I would never bring up something like that unless it correlates with their wanting their tonsils out. Well, your tonsils are big. Could they have sleep apnea? And then that ends up being related to BMI. So let's say I have a patient, they're coming in because they're tired all the time and their spouse complains that they snore, we're worried about sleep apnea. And I also, they have a significantly elevated body mass index. Now, I assume that they know this, right? Can we, can we safely make the assumption that if a patient is significantly overweight, they know it, it's not news to them. We don't have to bring it to their attention again. Yeah, obviously. I mean, that's definitely, I mean, that's just such a pet peeve of mine because- Someone's in a larger body in this culture that is very fat phobic. They obviously know they're in a larger body. We as we as doctors don't need to be high on our horse to be like, uh, you you know you're overweight. I mean, they got it. They get it. You know, like we don't need to remind anybody of that. Right. So you just so then I, what I would do is I would say, let them know that their body mass index. And, you know, be careful. I would be careful to avoid judgmental words like obesity is actually, you know, like a four-letter word for, for someone who lives in a larger body. So, you know, an elevated body mass index increases your likelihood of having sleep apnea. So we need to talk about, so 
how would you start that conversation if you were if you were in my place? I'll be honest, I'm not the expert on sleep apnea, so I'll take your word for it. But I I would challenge any assumption, you know, another good example is usually like joint pain, you know, that there are people in all size bodies that get all kinds of medical problems. So I think first we have to challenge a little bit of our beliefs and our training as physicians that everything is related to body size. But again, I'm not the apnea expert. So I'll, I'll take your word for it. But if we are, you know, I think education is key and keeping in a very neutral conversation, not a judgment on, you know, that your body size is causing this, you know, keeping it a neutral objective, like, Hey, we know that body size could affect this. You know, it's not the only cause, but it could affect it. You know, obviously I know with sleep apnea, it's also anatomy and some other things that potentially don't have anything to do with body size. So that said, though, I think it opens the door to a conversation like, hey, you know, are you interested in improving your health? Again, a very neutral conversation, putting a patient back in control, and they have the choice because health is a choice for people, you know, and you give them that choice. Maybe they're really not ready. And then at that point, the door shut, you move on. And that's okay. And we have to be okay as doctors that not everyone is going to want to do what's best for them. But if they say, yes, I would. At that point, I think that comes into habit change and behavior and what is known best. And I know you, you've had BJ Fogg and, and I love his book and I love the idea of incremental habit change. And I think it goes along with motivational interviewing. So everything with motivational interviewing is putting the patient in the driver's seat. So you're asking questions. It's literally an interviewing style to get the patient to come up with what they think is best. So you, you know, if you say, are you interested in improving your health? And they say, yes. And you say, well, what is maybe one thing that you think could improve your health right now? And maybe they'll say, well, I want to get better sleep. You know, like, well, what's one thing in your, in your control, you know, because obviously sleep, there's a, paradox there because sleep does improve your health, but other things improve your sleep too. So, you know, what is one thing? And then maybe they say, well, I could cut back on alcohol. So then you're like, okay, well, what are you currently drinking? Oh, I'm drinking glass of wine every night. Okay. Well, what do you think is reasonable for you to cut back on? Again, leading with curiosity. This is not telling them anything because we don't know what's best for them. And that's a really hard statement, but we actually don't know what is best for them. We can give guidelines and suggestions if they ask, but I find it is so much more powerful and creates such a better patient-physician relationship if you are keeping the patient in the driver's seat because it is their life. They need to drive the car. You are just there as like their GPS or their compass. Like you're helping guide them when they need it, but they're the driver of their own life. And I think we need to just understand our boundary as a doctor. Like, where are we? Are we in the passenger seat, like telling them how to drive? Or are we continuing to just be that GPS? It's like the annoying Siri that's like rerouting, rerouting, you know, which is okay. We can reroute. You know, there are some fields of medicine that are a bit more orthopedic surgery or something that's very cut and dry. It's very, hey, this is what we're going to do. And that's that's that. But we got to put I a nail in that. Yeah, yeah. Sure, pretty, yeah. I, for the orthopedic surgeons out there, I'm sure we're minimizing the complexity of what you do, but, you know, you do put nails in things. <laughs> but I think you're you're kind of getting to this, but, but what happens if we encounter a patient and they're like, they know the answer, they just need to completely cut out carbs. 
and or they need to go on a a, a tea fast where they're only going to drink tea for a week and that's going to reset their biological whatever you know like like they 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 know the answer they know it doc i've got it this time this is what i'm going to do right you know what it is it's my whatever and then i'm going to you know they've got these grandiose ideas and you know where it's going to take them mm-hmm. so you know you don't want to burst their bubble so how do you without without deflating their balloon how do you redirect that energy towards a more constructive process? I think there's lots of different ways you can handle this. I think sometimes, and it really depends on your personality type as a doctor and kind of where your comfort level is in this. Sometimes I play the humor card in situations like this. And I kind of know my patients pretty well. Like I know their background and I don't only treat eating disorders. I treat a broad array of mental health issues. So, you know, for people who don't have a previous history of eating disorder, they're just, they see me for other reasons and they come to me with some diet plan like this. Sometimes I'll joke because most of my patients know where I stand on this and I'll just be like, all right, I'll see you when you're knee deep in Oreos. (laughs) But that's not everyone's style and I get it, but I'll usually have a playful banter. But I do find it, it is an opportunity for us to, as doctors, set the frame that that's, not what they need to do. Because remember, we have this role of an authority figure and authority figures in people's lives are very triggering because we bring up this need to please somebody. And I don't care who you are, even the most rebellious patient secretly inherently wants to please their doctor. And I think sometimes they're telling us this because they're just trying to please us. I don't think it's actually what they really want to do. So I think sometimes a really gentle way to get around this is to just ask them, is that really what you want to do? Or how would how do you think that would make you feel? Just going about it in a very gentle way, because sometimes what you'll see is people are like, well, no, I don't want to, but I think I need to. And then that's another opportunity because then you're like, well, you don't really need to. You know, carbs are actually what we need. You know, our brain especially functions on glucose. We need a whole array of foods. You know, cutting out entire macronutrients under our diet is not healthy for us. And being able to have a more gentle conversation. And sometimes I find in those moments, I have patients that are like, really? I can have carbs? You know, like they're sincerely shocked because they're hearing from everybody else that, whoa, the only way to be healthy is to go keto and to fast for two days a week and, you know, all the kind of really extreme approaches out there when you can improve your health and your longevity of your life from much simpler steps than those things. Yeah, I find the dogma to be dangerous, right? Like this is the one way, this is the right way to the exclusion of everything else. You know, and and I think as physicians, sometimes we have our own experiences. Like I did this and it worked for me. And therefore, right, this is like CrossFit, you know, like I'm, I'm a devotee. Like when I do, when I work out, it is frequently a CrossFit style workout Mm -hmm. that works for me. Like, you know, and there are certainly like 90 year olds that do that and it works for them. So, but to, to one size fits all just, just doesn't work. So your philosophy, I think is, is kind of like the, is like the anti-dogma, right? So tell us about intuitive eating. So intuitive eating is a 10 step, really, it's a framework. You know, it's not something I created by any means. It's a lot of what I do, but I am, I'm not a dietitian. I don't claim to have an expertise in nutrition. So 
really, but the intuitive eating is is a 10 principle framework. They're not to be done in order. It's not steps. It's, you know, it's not like a 12-step AA model or anything, but it's really a way to find freedom from food. And it was originally created by two dietitians, seeing people countless times over in their practices that just had a really hard time losing weight and wondering, are we missing, are we missing the boat here? You know, they would give a meal plan and then they couldn't ever stick to it. And they would give these other ideas and restrictions and guidelines and they couldn't ever stick to it. And so it's this idea that there isn't one diet that fits all, that actually getting in touch with what works for your body, you know, honoring your hunger, your fullness, your satisfaction, what gives you energy. You know, for one person, maybe that is a vegetarian diet. I don't know. For another person, maybe it's keto with like, you know, very little vegetables and no fruit. Maybe it's someone who just has a wide array of all kinds of foods, you know, but especially for people who have a history of an eating disorder, which again, 90% of people with eating disorders have never been formally diagnosed. So I think it's a lot more than we realize in our population that have had clinical eating disorders. Such a high subset of people, especially in women, and you really needing to find ultimate peace with food because a diet is your drug, essentially. You know, a diet is to someone who's had an eating disorder like alcohol is to an alcoholic. And that's where, from your earlier question, kind of talking about like, is there a subsect of people that it's more or less damaging for? And I I do think people who have that propensity to get very disordered very quickly into full-blown disorder territory, then diets in and of themselves really are like cocaine and you probably should stay away from them. And so intuitive eating is an alternative for that. But it's it's really honoring your own your own body. You know, like if you get bloated after having dairy, that's honoring that. Whereas someone else could probably eat dairy and be perfectly fine. Could you elaborate a little more on what those steps really really do? Cuz I'm not mm-hmm. completely understanding like the 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 overarching theme. Well, the very, I'll give you some of the principles that will probably help. So the very first principle is reject the diet mentality, which is exactly this, this all or nothing, good or bad kind of mentality around food saying that carbs are all bad and sugar is all bad and broccoli and chicken is all good. And so then what happens with that kind of mentality is it creates a lot of anxiety around eating. You know, and then it comes down to almost a physiological approach, like you're anxious when you're eating and then you don't know if it's the anxiety that's causing digestive issues. Like, so you're then becoming more anxious, more stressed, causing havoc, obviously in not just your relationship with food, but so many areas of your life. So getting past this idea that there are good and bad foods, that obviously food is not nutritionally equal, but that we're able to look at all food as emotionally equal. And that's a really huge thing so that you can live your life because food is a part of life. I think we want to pretend it's not. We we wish things didn't include food, but food is a blessing. Food is there for celebrations for a reason because it brings us pleasure and it brings us joy. You know, there's a reason why families that have family dinners are, you know, have so much better reports, like in terms of overall emotional well-being of the family unit, of children. You know, it's it's because sharing meal, breaking bread with people, literally, or, you know, your keto bread, I don't know. Um, <laughs> it's a good thing. And so being able to escape those thoughts, being able to get out of your head and actually able to just literally enjoy eating again is a really big thing. And another one of the principles is 
being able to cope with your emotions without using food. So that's a huge part of the work I do as a psychiatrist is helping people uncover what are all of these underlying reasons that we're turning to food as our only source of comfort, you know, which is a super common thing. It's like the most legal drug out there to, to turn to, to food for comfort. And in short doses, it's fine. You know, Hey, we have a stressful day. You want to have a cookie. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. What becomes problematic is when food is your only source of comfort, or it turns into really disordered behavior like binges and just compulsory eating, which is very uncomfortable and distressing for people. Cause then there are physical health outcomes to that that are not so pretty. And so finding ways to like deal with your emotions, to get past the emotional distressing piece of eating that you're able to eat in freedom. You know, another principle is gentle nutrition. So when you're finally making all the mental health improvements, the goal is ultimately, which is principle 10, that you are able to choose foods that feel good in your body, that you are having almost an individualized, customizable approach to your health and what health looks like for you, which is going to be different. Some people can be a little more extreme with that or not. And that is your choice. But it's really, again, it's kind of all bringing the individual back in the driver's seat of their health, back in touch with their body. You know, so many of my patients don't even know what hunger feels like. That's another principle of intuitive eating is honoring your hunger. But we've been following meal plans and guidelines and and restrictions for so long. We have no clue what even physical hunger feels like in our body. That's a huge, that's a really big problem. I mean, our bodies were like masterfully designed to literally tell us when we're hungry, just like telling us when we need to use the restroom or telling us when we're thirsty or, you know, when we need to go to sleep. You know, these are biological things inside our body. But every time we turn to out, side restrictions and guidelines and meal plans, we're fighting that biology in our bodies, which is going to worsen our physical health too. So there's lots of interplays. It's hard to describe in just a few sentences because it really is an entire framework of looking at food with just more neutral lens so that honestly, you can just live a better, fuller life. In, in one of my early interviews, I interviewed uh, Stephanie Sog, who wrote a great article called Bad Words, and it helps us to to know what words are okay to use and just, you know, overall framework of recognizing that our words shape our thoughts. So when we're addressing these patients, and one, one thing that she said was, there's no such thing as food isn't good or bad, unless it's poisonous, it's gone bad, or it's taste bad. In all of those circumstances, don't eat it. So those are the only times that food food is really bad, yet we we manage to stigmatize uh, so many foods. No, I think intuitive eating, you did a really great job of describing it. It makes sense, especially with the title of your podcast. It's not about the food because until you recognize these principles that you just described, it it is about the food. Mm. Until you go through what you just described that helps you realize and really live in such a way where it isn't about the food. You like un, yeah. You're like untangling a knot and making it no longer about the food by going through those things. But until then, you know, the, you end up, you end up fixating, fixating on the food. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it, that, that makes a lot of sense. So give us a couple of examples. We don't want to th- throw, throw our colleagues under the bus here, but I'm sure there are some cringeworthy things that patients have told you that they've, they've heard either from other healthcare practitioners, either physicians or, or, or our non-physician colleagues, um, or maybe they've, 
you know, read on the internet. So what are the, what are the some of the more cringeworthy things that you've heard? Well, I brought up the strep throat example because that's literally something that I've heard from my patients. You know, that someone goes to the doctor, literally tests positive for strep throat, is getting antibiotics, and their doctor brings up their weight and spends 20 minutes outside of a normal checkup time really badgering them about their weight when Honestly, you're sick and you so already don't even feel good. Right. I know a few things about Trump. I've probably taken out, I don't know, between one and 2,000 tonsils. Uh, yeah, you're right. It is nothing. It is. It is. Yes. So, yes, absolutely. I would never, I would never uh, bring that up in that, in that conversation. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Strep throat being caused by an elevated BMI. That's, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's awful. And I think, too, the issue with weight is a really big issue because for most people, their eating disorder first began with a diet. And not everyone who goes on a diet is going to get an eating disorder, but a large majority of women, especially who do go on a diet, do end up with an eating disorder. And so the reason we go on diets usually is because we want to change our body and usually because we want to lose weight. And usually because we have a fixation with a certain number on the scale. And so all of this is pretty important because what is usually the very first thing that happens when we go to a doctor's office? You get weighed. Weighed, yeah. And I don't think people realize for someone, I can speak from personal experience, and one of the stories I'll tell is a personal story, that the number on the scale is a very triggering thing to someone who's had a previous eating disorder. And depending on where they're at in their recovery journey, you know, I can honestly say now I'm fully recovered. A number on a scale is just a number. I don't regularly weigh myself, but when I do go to the doctor and need to be weighed, it's a neutral experience. And I'm not looking up diet plans in the doctor's office waiting room, waiting to see the doctor. But that used to be my story. And about actually a year ago, at the time of this recording, I was pregnant with my now youngest. And it was a twin pregnancy where I lost one of the twins at 22 weeks. Okay. And it was a very traumatic pregnancy for me in the moment. And it yeah. was after I lost the twin, I was referred to a high-risk doctor. So this is a different doctor. and wasn't my first time seeing a high-risk for my pregnancy with my son, I also saw uh, a high-risk doctor for a different reason. But it was the first time in this clinic, waiting in the doctor's office. Obviously, I know I'm going to get an ultrasound. And the last time I had an ultrasound was so traumatic because obviously it showed the loss of life of one of my babies. And so here I am with my husband. So I'm not by myself, but I'm with my husband and I'm almost on the verge of a panic attack. Okay. It was just a very anxiety-ridden experience that was probably made worse by a lot of pregnancy hormones and just a really horrific event that happened to me. And my obstetrician, who was my primary OB in the pregnancy, knew my full history. We had a great rapport. And I usually did blind weights with her, but very sporadically. And we had a great deal because I that again, it's a thing. And especially when you're pregnant, when you're weighed so frequently, it is a really triggering experience. And so here I am in this new clinic. It's a very busy clinic. You know, there's multiple doctors, high risk. And it's one of those clinics where you see like the medical assistant and they do your vitals and then you go back and you wait. <laughs> Although I didn't know this ahead of time. And so again, they call my name. The medical assistant doesn't even give me eye contact. Like she says my name wrong. My name is weird. So I didn't, whatever. I'm already kind of on the brink of a panic attack. Literally next words out of her mouth is like, okay, step on the scale. 
I didn't want to step on the scale. I want to make sure my baby's healthy. I want to talk to a doctor first. Like I want to like have a little more reassurance right now. And I was a little taken aback again because I wasn't used to being weighed. And I literally had just seen my other OB yesterday. So it didn't even make sense to me that I needed to be weighed again. But I sort of, I was a little powerless to speak for myself. And so I did, I just did as she said, stepped off. They checked my blood pressure. It was a little elevated because I was so anxious in that moment. Then there was a little more anxiety because my blood pressure was elevated. And, and it was a really actually horrific experience that ended up with me later being able to talk to the doctor about what was going on. And unfortunately, this doctor really told me that I, I told her I didn't want to be weighed. I said, I'm going to be seeing you every single week from here to the end of my pregnancy. And I see my primary OB already. She takes my weight. If there's any issue, she'll tell you. The offices are literally right next to each other. I said, I don't want to be weighed here every single week. This is not good for my mental health. And I tried to explain my history with her and she really wasn't having it. And it was really disappointing. And it it wasn't the only thing that made me frustrated with my medical care team and my present pregnancy, but it definitely was a really big thing that had a pretty lasting effect to the point that, I mean, I would never recommend that particular clinic to anybody. Again, not just because of that, but because it made me out of the driver's seat. It made me feel so out of control in an already really out of control pregnancy. And so I tell you this pretty strong example, and I'm not even in a larger body. You know, I'm in a very average body. My weight was fine. It was never, my weight was never even issue and it still was traumatic for me. So I can only imagine those moms, those guys, those patients that are in larger bodies that already have the personal sense of shame from a culture and a society that is not forgiving to people in larger bodies to now be constantly shamed by a medical care team that only focuses on this number. And so I, I want you to know patients are so much more than a number, quite literally, like more than just the number on the chart, but more than their weight and there are so many factors that go into weight that may may not have anything to do with what they're eating and how much they exercise. And so getting we have to be able to challenge what goes into weight that is way more than just food in, like energy in, energy out kind of mentality. And that this is a person you're talking to. This is a person that's probably likely very sensitive to this issue. And to helping them feel empowered in situations where there already is a power gap between a doctor and a patient. And so I hope those stories help. Extremely helpful. Extremely helpful. And thank you for being so vulnerable about your own, um, your own journey. So where I know you practice telemedicine. So that means that for all the doctor listeners, they might be able to send you patients as long as you have mm-hmm. a, uh, a medical license in their state. So where can they find you for your practice and your podcast? Yeah, so I am licensed in Texas, Virginia, and Maine now, actually. So um, Okay, as far apart as possible. Maybe random. you'll get Washington <laughs> next or Oregon. It is random. Yeah. So if you, if you have patients or you just want to collaborate, you just want to chat with me, my website is the best way to find me, stephanierinoldmd.com. It's Stephanie like Gwen Stefani. Reinold is R-E-I-N-O-L-D-M-D.com. You can get more information about my podcast. You can find my podcast on anywhere you get your podcast. It's called It's Not About the Food 
where we talk about all the reasons you struggle with food that aren't about the food. And, and that's a little bit about me. Well, thanks so much. This has really been a great yeah. conversation and stuff that definitely going to help me improve my ability to interact with my patients and I'm sure for our listeners as well. So thanks again. Yeah, thanks, Brad. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.